uh, now we come to the uh, spiritual part of the program, uh, the introduction of our speaker. Uh, I've heard him speak in Miami and uh, in Laguna Beach, and uh, he's, it's well worth uh, whatever fabulous price we paid to fly him in here tonight from Dallas. And uh, I'm sure you'll all uh, never forget good old... Uh, What's your name? Uh, you? Dave, Dave, yeah. Dave, would you like to come up and tell us all about it? Let's welcome him. Are you West Coast folks quit reading? You know, uh, Luke and I were talking over there a while ago, and he said, you know, David, he said, you you don't have to make the best talk, you know how, because anything you have to say will help this bunch. <laughs> and after you get through clapping, somebody read the 12 traditions, I can understand what he meant. <laughs> and then Jerry, a while ago, asked me, he says, are you nervous? Jerry, I've been to the bathroom so many times, the last time I just stood there. Hi, everybody. My name is David A., and I am an alcoholic. Hi, David. And a member of the Blessed Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and with a belief in a power greater than myself, whom I call God, and with the help of many, many people such as you, I have not found it necessary or have taken a drink of an alcoholic nature since April the 20th of 1967, and for this I am so thankful. In our part of the country, if you are visiting here for the first time, this is the way we're brought up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was told when I came to this fellowship, they said, boy, if you have forgotten your last drunk, you haven't had it yet. And you get up and you tell your sobriety date. And so this is the way we're brought in. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they read in a wonderful tradition that we're autonomous. And that means that each and every section of the country is allowed to have the freedom to make its own mistakes in Alcoholics Anonymous. And one thing about an Alcoholics Anonymous, there are no authorities and there are no experts. There are no graduates. We got a lot of men here think they're God, but then they slow down after a while. But they've already read the steps, and they read the purpose, and they read the traditions, and uh, chapter three, more about alcoholism. And so I guess all I'm left to do now is to disclose in a general way what it used to be like and what happened and what it's like now. And this is all that I know to talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous because I had hell getting here. I don't mind telling you. It'll be 23 years and two weeks in this month, August, ago that some very fine, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous invited me to come to a birthday meeting at the old suburban group in Dallas, Texas. My manicurist at that time, who said she had remained free of alcohol for one year, she's going to celebrate her birthday. And her sponsor, who was also a manicurist and worked at the table next to her in the same barbershop, she had about three more months of consecutive sobriety, longer than this one. And they invited me and my wife to come to this birthday party. In our part of the country, a birthday party, oh, it's something. And now, it's not a regular AA meeting, it's just a big gathering, it's more like a testimonial. And in those days, and that was in 1950, 
And I thought that the only reason that you people wanted to have someone like me come to one of your AA birthday parties that you needed to have some good-looking, outstanding, and successful professional man come and upgrade you kind of people in the community. And so I had me in those days a 1950 big, long, gunmetal gray Buick, and that model had holes in the fenders. And I wished I'd have saved that suit because the lapels were white. And I had on one of those white and white, white on white shirts, monogram shirt, monogram tie, monogram handkerchief, monogram drawers, alligator shoes, diamond ring, fine watch, you know. And I, that tie, it was one of those hand-painting ties, if you remember, with a big old sailfish coming over it and a hula girl looking up at her. And we went out there and I made them move some cars because I wanted to know that somebody important is coming to help you dingy-looking people. And we got out and we went up the steps and there's two drunks that were sitting there and they wouldn't let them come into the meeting because they was drinking. And I made one of them move over so he wouldn't mess up my shoes and that fine suit. And we went in there, and them people in there, they were hugging and kissing and everybody talking and nobody listening and everybody raising all kinds of hell and grace of God and think, think, think. That's dangerous for a drunk to think, you know. And so they had this meeting. And the first celebrant got up, and it was a young lady... And I had been well acquainted with her. It wasn't the manicures. And there's no sense in me going in and tell you how well I was acquainted with her because, you know, as some of your husbands out here liable to grin, your wife will slap you a couple of times. <laughs> but she got up, and it wasn't the one that invited me to come to meet. And she got up, and she says, as a result of her finding sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, as a result of her year, she had caught Christ back in her life. And then if anyone ever comes to Alcoholics Anonymous did not find Jesus Christ their personal Savior, there was no way in this God's world for them to stay sober. And I said, what a hell of a trick to play on a Jew. You invite him to come to a birthday party under the auspices of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're really there to convert him. <laughs> and from that time on, my mind closed, and I didn't hear anything else that was there at that meeting. Now, I'm asked all over the country, how come there are not any more Jews in Alcoholics Anonymous? It's very simple. The way people have their noses fixed and their names changed, you don't know who in the hell you're sitting next to. <laughs> Now, the good doctor this morning, you know, the non-alcoholic that gave his story, got to talking about it, and we're not in competition in Alcoholics Anonymous, but, you know, I'm going to tell you in AA and about how early we took a drink and how early we didn't take a drink, but now that I told you who I am and what I am, and our religion, you know, we hear in AA, you know, that no one will hold you down and pour a drink of alcohol into you, and no one will get you drunk, but in my case, that's not true, because in our religion, when a boy is born after the eighth day, they name him and introduce him into the tribe, and it's done in a very unique little manner. Now, the gentleman that performs this ceremony, in my case, he had a black hat and a long black beard and a long white robe, and his tool in trade is a sharp little knife. 
And this gentleman is not licensed to perform surgery or medicine, so they used a formula on me that was very, very interesting. Now, his helper is a godfather, and the godfather's job was to procure an old-fashioned iced tea glass and fill it full of hundred-proof old Guggenheim. Our folks like to keep everything among the relatives, you know. <laughs> and then he takes a water gauze and he soaks it thoroughly in the bourbon. And after he soaks it thoroughly in the bourbon, this was done to me, so I was told. And then he takes it out and places one hand over the baby's mouth. And whilst that bourbon, it's, uh, the gauze is soaked in bourbon, gently in front of the baby's nose, let him inhale the fumes. And right when that man with that little knife says, ready... That's when that godfather opened up that mouth and shoved that alcohol in that gauze in my mouth, and that's when the first drink of alcohol was forced down me against my will. And I've had one hell of a problem ever since. So you see, very honestly and humbly, uh, very humbly, long ago I had to give up something in order to get into this way of life. And alcohol has been in and around our family all of my waking hours. And we were taught as a youngster that Jews do not become alcoholics or drunkards and lots of other things. It's all right for you dirty Gentiles, but not for God's chosen people. And like the good little doctor today, you know, I may talk a little bit about my mother. I was raised in a family that number one was mama, number two was God, and number three was Moses. And what Mama said, God did, and if Moses didn't like it, he could leave. <laughs> and my mother, at the age of 79 years of age, she had a backhanded slap and was faster than any rattlesnake you've ever seen. My daddy was afraid of her. My brothers, her rabbi was afraid of her. Everybody was afraid of my mother. And also, as a youngster, I was raised, you know, that a drink in moderation. As I told you, that we do not become drunkards. My life was programmed. Now, I'm not going to tell you I became an alcoholic because I hated my mother or that I sucked my thumb when I was a baby or that someone stole my little red wagon when I was four or five years old or that the gardener scared my mother when she was seven months pregnant with me. No. I'm one of these Alcoholics Anonymous that firmly believes that I may be alcoholic because I drank alcohol. And I drank alcohol to the point in my life to where I could not guarantee my behavior after taking a drink of alcohol. I drank alcohol to the point in my life to where I knew I couldn't drink, but I couldn't stop drinking. I knew I couldn't drink, yet I drank. I knew I couldn't drink, but I couldn't keep from starting. And it's a hellacious, hellacious cycle. I was also raised in a society back in the days when I was a kid and the Ku Klux Klan was running around, you know. And they had four on their targets. Number one was the black, number two was the Catholic, number three was Jews, number four was dogs. And I want to go on record now telling you we never lost a dog. The reason I'll tell you this is because my mother and father were born in Europe. And they immigrated in this country to find a way of life to where they could worship a god of their understanding. And they were locked up at nights because of their religious belief they were not allowed to do this. And they brought all these fears over with us. And we were ingrained in these fears. And my mother, as I said, programmed my life 
where I was going to go to school, how I was to dress, what I was to splash on my chest after the Saturday night bath. I had to put asphysty on in, 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 you know, in the fall of the year and take it off on Passover or Easter, whatever you want to call it. And I was told this and that. And if I'd have listened to my mother and father by the time I was 42 years of age, They'd have given me enough money and I never would have had to work the rest of the day of my life if I didn't want to. And they also were going to program me who to live with and, and, and how to get married. My mama told me, she said, I don't care later on if she's black, if she's fat, if she's ugly, she's white, green, or what. As long as she's Jewish, you can marry her. <laughs> and that's just the way it was. But actually, when I first consciously took alcohol, when I was around about five or six, that I could consciously remember it. I drank that alcohol, and I liked what alcohol did to me from that time on. And little did I realize it until I came into this program, and you shoved the book of Alcoholics Anonymous in my hand, you said, read it. And in it, I found something that had eluded me for almost 20-some-odd years in the medical profession. That in this profession, and I found something in the book, and call it the doctor's opinion. And here's a little doctor who treated over 40,000 alcoholics before Alcoholics Anonymous ever got started, and over 10,000 after we got off of the ground. And incidentally, here is a man, and a lot of times you may think that you're uncomfortable when you come to the IDAA meeting, and you say, well, you know, I've got a cross, you know, infection. Read Bill's story. Bill says this, that I was tired of alcohol and sedatives. And incidentally, he was in a hospital, this little doctor, a well-known hospital at the time for alcohol and drug abuse, what they knew about it at that time. And I think that before we go any further about trying to find out the malady that we have, and in the few pages that the little doctor wrote in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, he laid her out, and up to this minute, it still is the most valid thing that there is, basically, about the nature of our kind of people and the malady that we have. In it, this little doctor played a very important role. Basically, a lot of us in this room basically owe our lives of sobriety tonight to this little doctor. Because it was this little doctor, when Bill called him in after he had his spiritual flash, hot flash, or whatever you want to call it, and I always saw it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to hear, hear people talk about Bill's hot flash, you know. And I thought, you know, that lightning come down and goosed him in the rear end and everything flew up in the air and he come down and everything was peaceful. But not until I read his story did I find that after he did certain things, then he had this experience. As our 12 steps are laid out, in our 12th step, after we are willing to do certain things, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and Bill did certain steps while it, then he had this experience. The little doctor went in there and he looked at him. 
Bill started talking about it. The little doctor said, Bill, I don't know what you have. I don't understand it. But whatever you got, hold on to it. It's so much better than what you used to have. He could have very easily gone back out to the nurse's station, wrote some stat orders to go in there and put him back to sleep and say, Honey, that man in there has got hallucinations again. Put him to sleep. But here was a little professional man, a non-alcoholic, that sweated with us over 50,000 of us, and incidentally, he never saw a recovery. He told Bill the truth. He says, Bill, I don't know what you have. I don't understand it. But whatever you have, hold on to it. It's so much better than what it used to be. And if you're new here tonight, and you don't understand it, just remember this. One day of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous is so much better than what it was before you had it. Hang on to it. Because, you know, this is the reason our program says God is we understand him. Nobody fully understands it, can define it, whatever it is. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding that's indescribably wonderful in this fellow. And it's difficult to describe it. And sure, some of you may be shocked at our apparent worldliness and levity, but just underneath there's a deadly earnestness and a full realization that we must put first things first. And with each of us, the first thing is our alcoholic problem, for to drink is to die. And as our book tells us, faith must work in and through us 24 hours a day, or we will perish. And to hasten along with my story, and so when my mind closed at that birthday party, and I had violated one of the cardinal rules of living at that time. Because I started, as I tell you, uh, actually uh, drinking and that first drink. It affected something in my mind. And I liked the effect that alcohol produced within me. And I didn't drink alcohol later on to just to smell it, to sniff it, you know, and to gargle it. I drank it to drop it right down in that hole where it'll do the most good. And a lot of times coming up, it tasted just as good as it did and went down the first time. But something happened to me from that time on. Whatever it was in my mind, I liked the effect that alcohol produced within me. And from that time on, every chance I got, I was going to take a drink of alcohol for the effect that it produced within me. And from that time on, whatever it is, started cultivating an obsession to drink alcohol for the effect. When I was 12 or 13 years of age, I went to work down on what was then Skid Row, and it's Skid Row today, and it'll always be Skid Row in Dallas, Texas. And I went to work for a boyfriend of mine because my mother wanted me to be a concert pianist, and I didn't want to be a concert pianist, and I wanted to play football. And I want to play baseball. I want to run around with the girls and do all the things that a lot of other people had. And I like those blue-eyed, blonde, freckle-faced American gals. I didn't like them kind that I had was picked out for me. And anything my mother told me not to do, I was damn sure going to do it. And alcohol helped me. And it gave me the chance to be free. And it gave me a chance to jump out the window and do all the things that I wanted to do. And I went to work down there with the black and the white wino. Now, a lot of people in AA come in and said, well, we started drinking, you know, scotch and then went on down. I started drinking bay rum and wine. 
and I drank up, and then I drank down. And I could make that transition from Thunderbird wine to Jack Daniels and never miss a drink. And I could come down from Johnny Walker Black Label down to El Carlo Muscatel and never miss a damn drink. And I learned how to cheat, and I learned how to steal, and learned how to do all those things and fight. And, and, you know, and after we'd get through working, I'd go, you know, to the juke joints and the gin mills with, the, with my little black and white wine old friends, you know. And that was back in the day before the Volstead Act was repealed, or in other words, before they repealed Prohibition. And this is right when the wage and hour started coming in. And I was making myself $5 a week, and I spend $4.5 on it a week for alcohol and 50 cents for cheeseburgers. And that's just about right. And I learned all the tricks of the trade. And while I was down there, I learned another beautiful concoction. I learned how to drink either. One day I was back in one of the wet rooms. That's where you fooling around with the lettuce. And this old black toothless wino Toodaloo looked at me. He says, oh, he says, I'm sick. And I said, so am I, Toodaloo. He says, come here. I got something good for you. And he reached behind there and got a can of ether. And we both holding the coffee cup. And he poured some in there. And then he poured some prune juice in it. And he said, and I drank it. And my God, I drank that stuff. And when it went down, oh, my God, what a feeling. What a feeling. And you know, I'll tell you one thing, it'll get you healthy, but if you keep on drinking it, you'll smell like a white operating room, you get white as a sheet, but you'll get, it'll do something to your brain, I don't know what it does. And then one year I was working down there and I ran off and joined the Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus, and I learned to drink alcohol circus style. If you've never drunk with the circus, you just never drunk with the circus. I learned a beautiful concoction, green lizard circus style. That's a elixir of sold and bromide and lucky tiger hair tonic. And I won't tell you something. I saw Bambi and them animals in Technicolor long before Disney ever put them on the screen. And I was too tough and I had to come home. I was living three lives. I was going to school, you know, satisfying mother and father. I found out long ago, my mother and father. And they told me long ago, I said, son... We weren't allowed to do a lot of the things you're doing. My father became a, a tremendous financial success in his business. And they made the mistake of telling me. Said, now, David, we are going to provide for you all the things that we weren't allowed to have when we were growing up. And for a little fellow that was going to turn out to be like I was going to turn out to be, that was the greatest thing that I could ever have because that meant that I had financial freedom as long as there was a dollar around that crew. Well, I had to go to school, graduated high school, went on to Southern Methodist University, went on to Baylor University College of Dentistry, and I was still working down there on the weekends going to school, uh, during the school years and getting drunk on Friday, drunker on Saturday, drunker on Sunday and tapering off and trying to go to school and wishing for a drink. And my God, drink a beer. And then I got on what the youngsters, they call the uppers and diners, you know, the amphetamines and the barbiturates and trying to study and taking a drink and trying to go to sleep. And it's just like going around in the squirrel cage waiting for Friday to come around so I can get drunk again and drunker on Saturday and drunker on Sunday. And then when I was school was out in the summertime, I'd work down there and it was a tough and it was mean. But something happened at the end of my freshman year in dental school. You know, education is a process of what? 
memory to some degree, but repetition confirms and strengthens this habit. And this is what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because of the excessive use of my alcohol at that time, at the end of my freshman year, I could not study and I flunked out of school. And I had to go home and tell my mother. And my mother looked at me and she says, David, I don't understand it. What happened? And I wasn't going to tell my mother the truth. I wasn't going to tell her that because of my drinking and because of the other things that I was doing that I could not study and go to school. And I told her the one thing that I knew that would get my mother and father to do what I wanted to do. I said, Mama, and I want to preface this before I get started, because this is a part of my feelings and a part of my resentments, and if we can't talk how we felt on the inside and how we feel today, this is the name of the game in Alcoholics Anonymous, because this is where we carried it around, and this is where it gets so good today. This is where it gets so good today, in here where the living goes on. Because I, when I went to professional school, I went to school under the quota system. I was the first one of my kind to get in that dental college in five years. And I was reminded of her every day, and I'd go out and get drunk, and I said, the first one I'm going to catch on the outside, I'm going to beat hell out of them. I'm going to tell them how good we are. And this is just the way I was. And when I flunked out of school, I told my mother, I said, well, you know how it is. I was the first one of our kind to get into professional school. And they got a professor that don't like our kind. And she said, they can't do that to my boy. And when she said that, I knew I had her. <laughs> and she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to try to get back into school. She said, we'll give you all the help. We'll get all the political pull. We'll do everything you want to. And I said, and she said, what else are you going to do? I said, well, Mama, I said, tell you, I've been having so much trouble, you know. I think I'll get married. I said, I met this wonderful girl. And I believe that if I got married, that I've had some additional responsibilities as a husband, and that would keep me in line to study, and that I'd do better in school, and I'd stay home, and I could study and make the grades and go ahead and finish. She says, fine. But something about our kind of people said, who's going to pay for this deal? And I said, well, I said, I'll tell you. This girl, I investigated her parents, and they seemed to be well fixed financially. And I says, and you and daddy have all the money you'll ever need. Now, if we can talk her parents paying half the living expenses, and you and daddy pay half the living expenses, and she can go to work, and I can go back to school, and everything going to be all right. Well, my folks agreed to it. They even went down and bought our wedding rings for us. And Grace and I were married under those exact conditions. Her parents paid half the living expenses. My parents paid half the living expenses. She went to work in the department store. I went back to school, went back to work on the market, drank more, but by hook or crook, graduated. And when I did, my mother finally had her greatest ambition up that time with her oldest son. Her oldest son received that degree, DDS. And just like Joe, for many years now, it meant to me only a drunk dental surgeon. Doctor of Dental Surgery. Along about that time, the United States Navy came along and commissioned me a lieutenant junior grade in the United States Naval Reserve and officially declared me an officer and a gentleman of the country. Now, you take a doctor who has been officially declared an officer and a gentleman of his country, and he loves to drink alcohol, and you pour alcohol into that combination, and he's a Jew taxing the boots. You've got hell on wheels. I don't mind that. 
And I sallied forth into the service with my new bride, and things weren't too tough the first time except the relationship between Grace and myself because of my drinking began to deteriorate. Loss of communication and loss of effective relationships. Didn't get into too much trouble the first time. Got out of the service the first time and moved on back to Dallas. And I opened up a dental practice and I began to make more money than I ever made in my life. But I was too busy. I like to drink alcohol for the effect. And I'm going to refer again to the little doctor's opinion when he laid our malady down. And he says, and men and women drink essentially for it because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And although it is elusive and we will admit that it is injurious, there comes a time when we cannot differentiate between the true and the false. And then the alcoholic believes that his life is the only one. And so I had to believe then that I had to drink, and I wanted to drink, because alcohol did things for me that I wanted it to do for me, and I loved that effect. And I started putting my money in my left-hand pocket and putting it over to the right and didn't keep books and didn't pay taxes. Too busy, you know, just too busy. And two boys were born to that marriage. And I was the kind that began to stay away from home when I drank. And I'd go into a bar and I'd sit there and I'd have to leave after about an hour and a half because there wasn't anybody left in there smart enough for me to talk to. And I'd be gone about two and a half weeks from home and there's two boys that said born to that marriage and I'd come home and Grace was there with the little baby. Of course, I, I justified this by having her have a full-time housekeeper, a good husband, so she wouldn't have to work so hard. And I'd be gone about two and a half weeks, and I'd come in smelling like a goat with a two-week growth of beard, and I'd walk in, and I'd hug and kiss Grace. And she said, get away from me. Get away from me. I don't want to have a thing to do with you. But our kind can't take no for an answer. You know, I'd run and make another pass at her. And she said, I said, get away from me. I don't want to have a thing to do with you. And I'd grab my bottle and my old friend by the neck, that old crow bottle, and I'd go into the living room, and I had me a peanut butter jar thing, about eight ounces. Now, that's a respectable drink. I didn't even put ice in mine. You know, that gets in the way of your nose and the other cubes and all, and all that other garbage you put in there. Because if you have an eight-ounce drink and you spill two, you still got enough. And I'd be half drunk and I'd take that drink down and you know and I'd have I'd have to close one eye and look at her to keep her steady and I say, It's just my luck. Here she is, she's not even twenty six years old, and she's already going through the early change of life. <laughs> I should have married old Shirley, that's my problem. And you know, I looked all over the world for the woman that would understand me. And after I was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for three and a half months, I looked in the kitchen and there she was. She'd been there all along. Raising the kids, lying to the creditors, keeping a roof over their head, hoping that the thing that she loved would either get sober, die, or disappear. One of the two. Yeah. 
I looked all over the world for the people that would understand me and I never did find them. No wonder you all in Alcoholics Anonymous are coming. We understand you. Yeah, we understand you. And this got worse. The usual thing, Grace would go to the grocery store after a while and she'd get ready to get the order and the grocerman would say, Ms. Aronofsky, I'm sorry, but unless you pay cash, I can't let you have the groceries. She said, well, my husband will come around and give you a check. She said, I'm, he'd say, I'm sorry, but we got a cigar box full of them and we're having hell banking them with a tennis racket, you know. And she'd call me up and she said, hey, do we have any money in the bank? I said, plenty of money in the bank. She says, well, what happened? I says, well, I'll tell you what, our deposits crossed. Tell him to run it through again. She says, he won't run it through again. He wants cash. I said, quit him. Go get another one. And this went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And finally, in 1952, I recall back in the service, I didn't have to go. It gave me a chance to get out of this mess that I was in because I was a daily drinker and I was staying drunk around the clock when I could drink. Because my regular days was on in those days on Thursday afternoon and I started taking off on Thursday morning and not showing up till the following Monday. And then the next thing you know, I start taking off on Wednesday and not showing up till the following Tuesday. And I don't know if anybody in this room, you come to someplace and you feel so bad and you got to have a drink and you pour a drink down and my God, it goes down and then you take another one. And then you set it down and you walk away and, and, and you grab and you, you drink another. And then you, you want to go to work and you want to go home. And you put it under the cabinet or you hide it in a suitcase. And before you close, you take it out and take another one. There seems like a magic magnet. And little did I realize that what was happening to me then and I found out the nature of it when I read in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When it says this, that we are restless and irritable and discontented. And until we can once again feel the ease and comfort which seems to come at once after taking a few drinks. A few drinks that we see others taking with impunity. But once we succumb to that desire, then it sets up this phenomenon of craving for alcohol. My God, how I craved alcohol. And I'd put that cap on it and I'd go to the phone. And before I could pick it up, I'd have to have another drink. And I'd call my office and I'd say, have my nine o'clock patient come in at 11. My back hurts me this morning. And I'd hang up and have to have another drink. And then I'd run out and get me another one and start on it. And I'd call up and say, have them come in at five in the afternoon. And then that third phone call, I'll be in when I get there and hang up. It's a hellish, hellish existence. And then the little doctor said something that once this phenomenon of craving sets in after we succumb to the desire to drink, then we go through the well-known stages of a spree. Ending up remorseful and swearing again that we will never drink again. 
And yet we did this time after time after time after time after time. And here comes a little doctor's solution for our kind of people. That unless such a person goes through the experience of an entire psychic change, there is little hope for his recovery. And little did I realize until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous that this is what was happening to me. And people used to say, David, you are weak-willed. David, you are drinking to run away from the responsibilities of life. You are running away from the responsibilities to face life. David, you're running, you're running, you're running. Hell, I was drinking to overcome a phenomenon of craving for alcohol. I had to have it. I didn't want to be that way. But once I took a drink, I could not stop drinking. And it's very simple why an alcoholic cannot stop drinking on his own because hell he can't keep from starting on his own. He just can't keep from starting. But it's an amazing thing, as the little doctor tells us, that although people who do not understand this, once such a person undergoes this entire psychic change, a person who at one time was diagnosed and seemed to be doomed, Conditions and things that he can never comprehend. He can now comprehend them and get them done. And still very easily control his desire for a drink. But here is a kicker. But he must fulfill certain rules. Certain simple rules. Then the little doctor says, that this personality change will come about in Alcoholics Anonymous as long as our ideals are firmly grounded in a power greater than ourselves. And he laid out the entire nature of our malady and the entire nature of our recovery program in essence. Read it. Read it. And may I remind every alcoholic in this room that we are the only people on the face of the earth that when we pour that juice in us, there's something happens to us that happens to only our kind of people on the face of the earth and uh, nobody else. And you can't talk this talk until you've walked this walk, both drinking and what happened to you and what it is like now. And this is one of the reasons that in Alcoholics Anonymous it was, is, and will always be this transmission of communication of one to another. And it's one of the reasons that the little doctor says in our kind of people that our argument where frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices to the alcoholic. That our argument must have depth and weight in order for them to comprehend what we're trying to tell them. The book of Alcoholics Anonymous also admonishes me to do two things. Smash home to the alcoholic that's drinking the inability to stay sober based on self-knowledge alone motivated by the fear of alcohol. Then it tells me another admonishment in chapter 7, working with others. Tell him. Burn into his consciousness that anyone can get well 
regardless of anyone, provided they're willing to trust in God and clean house. And may I remind each and every one of you in this room tonight, there is only one book with the two words Alcoholics Anonymous on it. There is no other publication other than this, Alcoholics Anonymous. And we have a responsibility, I believe, and we have an obligation, I believe, that when we say we're sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, if we're asked anything about this program before we open up our big intellectual mouths, we better be damn sure we know what the hell we're talking about. And in the first 165 pages of this book of Alcoholics Anonymous is contained all of the instructions from cover to cover. There is not a situation, there is not a condition, there is not a problem, there is not a person, there is not a thing on the face of the earth that cannot be consummated in this book. Because this book tells me, and I found this when I came to you the first meeting, the first night, and I left with this feeling. I didn't know where in the hell I was when I was there, when I come later. But I left with this feeling that there is no situation too impossible or no no situation too impossible or no something too good that cannot be overcome. It'll come back to me sooner or later. It cannot be overcome. And they left it with the feeling. Well, I had a lot of more drinking to do. When I got called back in the service, I told you I didn't have to go, and I went to the 1st Marine Division, and I went back to the 3rd Marine Division, and I got into an awful lot of trouble. Because at this time, I was drinking, and I couldn't put the juice down. And as a result of this thing, I got me a general court-martial. And I was found guilty, and I was facing 25 years in the federal penitentiary because of my drinking. I knew this, but I didn't want them to know about it. And I got into a lots of problems as an officer's club officer, and time will not permit me to tell it. But for 11 and a half months, I laid with a leg iron locked around my right leg, and that leg iron welded to that cot in the combat unit with armed guards around me 24 hours with M1s with fixed bayonets and sidearms just daring me to move. And I managed to drink. And I managed to stay drunk. Grace never did hear from me. I never sent any money home. Never paid for the education of my children. I was too busy doing the things that I wanted to. And not until I read the book of Alcoholics Anonymous did I find out the reason that if I'm not willing to go ahead and turn my will in life over to care of God as I understand him in the third step, that this selfishness and self-centeredness, which seems to be the root of my trouble, will kill me and killing to me is drinking alcohol again. I know this. And I was. Because of my own selfishness and self-centeredness, I was doing the things that I wanted to do, powered and nurtured with alcohol. And you know, the best description for me as an alcoholic I found in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, when it said we're like a tornado roaring through life, breaking hearts and killing sweet relationships. And I don't know of a better description of an alcoholic of my kind. Now, there may be somebody out here that says, I didn't drink like David. Well, fine, I didn't drink like you drank. 
And you said, well, I didn't do the things that he did. I can't identify. I didn't do the things that you did. You said, I didn't hurt like he did. I didn't hurt like you did. But there's one thing that happens to every alcoholic when he drinks alcohol that we can't duck. And when we drink alcohol, the same thing happens to each and every. We get drunk. And it's the, if you're new here and you're coming here, try not to identify with personalities and people and try to match a story. Identify with the fact of what's wrong with you, the nature of the malady and why you are here. And then what can happen to you if you're willing to follow simple instructions of who we are and what we are. And when they read chapter 3 a while ago, they took out part of my talk. But that's all right, because the little fellow that read it, I believe he got it two ways, feeling it and reading it. Well, I'm laying and I got out of that court martial. I got in lots of trouble. And you know, it's a funny thing about our kind of people. When I was locked up for 11 and a half months, I was in the best position to take a long, hard look at me. But I didn't. The reason I was laying there, the commanding officer didn't like our kind. And I'm going to get him if that's the last thing I did. And I got enlisted aid of politicians and everything else in the Masonic order. And I got out. You know, and after that trial, and I hadn't been out for a long time, and, and, and they, I, I was found guilty, of course. But I wasn't locked up, and I was let go, and I was fined so many hundreds of dollars and dropped so many hundreds of numbers in grade and all this, and got my money back later on, and I was raised back for current promotion. Damn near made lieutenant commander out of deal for his old whip. You know how kind are when we operate. And so they told me, now you're free. You can go. And I said, here I was. Did I thank God because the Marine Corps and the Navy let me go? They didn't take my license away. That I was allowed once again when I get out to practice as a free man? No. I'm going out and I'm going to have me two drinks, eat me a good steak and come back. I went out of the gates of that place in Japan, went into that town, had one drink of alcohol three and a half weeks later. The military police found me and drugged me, put me in the same compound, in the same cot, locked the same leg iron on the same right leg, and the damn sergeant of the guard had guts enough to stick his ugly face in mine and say, what happened? (laughs) And I had no defense. And the Marine Corps was so disgusted with me, they shipped me back to the States and they shipped me to Treasure Island, and I hadn't heard, talked to, or sent any money home in three and a half years. Didn't know where Grace was, but I needed her in my business. Because here I'm going to get out pretty soon, and everybody liked Grace. Everybody loved her with her honest face and her sweetness and her light and all this and all that with the Salvation Army and the club woman, and she was a horseman. Of course, I I made her. You should have seen her when I married her. Fat and pimples. You know. And it used to make me madder than hell. Nobody liked me. And nobody asked me to do anything. It was always asked grace. After all, I'm the one that provided the maids. I paid the life insurance. And I started looking for grace. And I called Denver. 
And this lady's voice got on the phone, and I said, I want to talk great. She says she's not here. She has a date. She's on the weekend party in the mountains. And I said, I'm her husband. She says, I realize that, but upon the legal counsel and her attorney, you are not to have any communication either direct or indirect with her. And I said, where are the two boys? She said, they're playing across the street in the schoolyard. I said, well, I'm their father. I'd like to talk to you. She says, I'm sorry, but under the advice of her attorney, you are not to have direct or indirect contact with your children and hung up. And I said, now, isn't that something? That's gratitude for you. <laughs> Here I am, a returning hero. And, of course, you know, we are so remorseful. I stopped over and I bought four more rolls of ribbons. <laughs> Had more ribbons than Eisenhower. And so I did the only thing that I knew. I grabbed my friend, that old crow bottle by the neck, went down my room and started writing one of those letters. Dear Grace, I promise you that I'll stop drinking. We'll start over a new life. Please, please, please take me back. For some reason or other, and and I drank, and I was too embarrassed to go here and too embarrassed to go there, imagining people are talking about me. And so I got on the A train and went over to San Francisco to mail that letter. Took another drink of alcohol. Two and a half weeks later, the shore patrol found me half-dressed, half-undressed, half-up, half-down, a skid row hotel stairs, and I still had the letter in my pocket. And the Navy was so disgusted with me, they just cut my orders and shipped me out there, and we said, we'll just send you severance pay wherever you want us to. Just get the hell out of here and go. And I was released under those conditions. And Grace and I started to traveling around. I never lost five dental practices because of my drinking. I never lost my money because of my drinking. I never lost my self-respect because of my drinking. I never lost... Anything because of my drinking. As I look back now, I lost all of those things because I would not do anything about my drinking. And the two most precious things that I have today, a sober life, as a result of the recovery program through God's grace as I understand him, I will lose those two most precious commodities that I have given to me as a gift if I don't continue to do something about my drinking. I don't have a drinking problem today, and I damn sure don't have a living problem. I got me an alcoholic problem. And AA just simply shows me how an alcoholic can live one day at a time, happy, have a lot of fun, and consummate his problems and still not drinking. So if there's any area in my life that's out of kilter today, it's how I am not using this program is what's causing it. Not a living problem. A living haven't got a damn thing to do with living problems any more than money's got anything to do with money problems. I'm just not practicing the principles of the program in that area. Because our program, if it did not work under all conditions, it wouldn't be worth a darn because the alcoholic would just chew it to death, wouldn't it? Well... Grace and I started moving around, moved from town to town, closer up. 
We finally moved back to Dallas, and I was a daily drinker. You know, I never sobered up in a drying-out parlor or cave or tent. I just took another drink. If I had a headache, I didn't take an aspirin. I took another drink of alcohol. If I didn't take a headache, I took a drink of alcohol. If I wanted to go to the bathroom, I took a drink. If I didn't want to go to the bathroom, I took a drink. If I wanted to go to work, I took a drink. If I didn't want to, I just drank under all conditions. Oh, I've made lots of jails. Got into lots of problems. I tried to commit suicide one time. Two times, really. And the first time I said, well, I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to walk off down into the river and drown and everybody will forget about me. And I got halfway down there and I passed out and ended up in the city jail. And so the next time I said, well, I'm going down to the tallest building in Dallas and I'm going to jump off at the top and they're going to be sorry as they see me screaming and hollering, you know. And I was down in those days to wearing them alligator shoes that had holes in them. And a pair of old gray flannel pants, thermal underwear, a gray sweater with the sleeves out of it. And I was one of these kind, you know, that I'd freeze to death in the wintertime and burn up in the summertime. My seasons were out of whack. And so I got drunk and I had me a half pint bottle in my pocket. And I'm going into this bank building, and I had to have me another drink. And when I did, I sort of slipped, and I hit one of those huge things that got sand in it, you know, that with the cigarette butts and everything else. And I knocked it over, and as I'm sliding through that lobby in the sand, here is the head security man. Here's a man that was there when I was born as a child. Here's a man that saw me graduate from grade school number one in the class. Here's a man that saw me graduate my high school class as class valedictorian. Here's a man that saw me graduate from Southern Methodist University with four degrees summa cum laude. Here's a man that saw me graduate from professional school. Here's a man that saw me that had the finest chances in education, research, a lot of added things. Here's a man that saw me get an award for work in professional field. Here's a man that saw me with more opportunities than anything in the world. And he saw me sliding down the drain with a half pint of whiskey in my pocket, no socks on, alligator shoes with holes in it, flannel pants sliding across a bank floor in the sand with the cigarette butt showing my butt. Drunk. Handed up in jail again. And I finally found the handwriting on the floor of the Dallas County Jail again. Not the first time I was in that jail. The next to the last time I was in that jail, as I was released, the sheriff asked that I be brought before him, and he looked at me and he said, David, if you ever show up in my jail again for drinking or drunk, I'm going to have you put away to where you'll never bother another human being, bird, tree, dog, or rock the rest of your life. And here I am, I'm laying on the jail floor. Now, I had run out of people, I'd run out of whiskey, I'd run out of money, I was down to me, and me couldn't stop drinking, and me wanted to stop, and me was still drinking, but me was going with me every place me went, and me didn't want me anymore. Oh, I'd been to psychiatrists, and all the questions they asked me, Grace used to ask me for nothing, what the hell, you know. I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to find out I was a wife beater. You know, when we was fighting all along, I thought I was hitting her in self-defense, you know. 
And here I am laying on that jail floor again. But something's different this time in jail. I'm out on the runway. And I don't know if anyone has ever drunk yourself mentally clear for a few minutes. To where? Your mind knows where he is, but your body's physically drunk. And there I was laying in the runway, and something was different. Number one, I felt up, and I had my glasses on. And if you're ever going to be incarcerated for a while, if you've got metal in the earpieces or if you've got glass in there, they take that away. And I felt down, I had my belt on. They won't allow you to stay in a cell too long with your belt on. And I ran my, one of my heels across my shoes, and I had my shoelaces on, and that's not regular. And it wasn't in a religious way, and it wasn't in a spiritual way. It was in damn fear, I'll tell you. And I looked around and I says, my God, is there any help for me? And I got me an answer. And this thing within me said, listen, you overeducated, pompous, egotistical drunk, until you stop drinking, nobody can help you, not even me. And when they called my name, I said, drunk, I fell down. But I got out of that by that sheriff, and I never did ask him why. And I was too afraid to go home, didn't know where I lived, anything else. And while I was in jail the last time, the State Board of Dental Examiners were out looking for me. And they came by my office, and I wasn't there. And they told the lady that was working for me at that time, do not book any more patients, because we don't believe he's going to be around anymore and turn that license to the wall. Don't book any more patients. But we got to find him and serve him. I didn't know if I had an office left. I didn't know where I lived. And I went there. And I went in and the lady was looking for me, working for me at that time. She looked at me. She said, my God, doctor, you look sick. And I said, I am. I'm sick in the head and sick in the gut. It's like the double blank on the domino, double nothing, held together by a shell. I said, would you call a number? She called this number, and this man got on the phone. I said, W.O., are you still interested in Alcoholics Anonymous? He says, yes, I am. Who is it for? And I said, it's for me. He said, well, we have a meeting tomorrow night. Let's just go and get it over with, and don't you take a drink of alcohol this day. And he hung up, and that's all that man told me. And after coming to you people and hearing love and caring, sure, and we understand, I was wondering where it was that day when I called him. But that man knows me as well as any human being alive. I used to get drunk with him. Saw him get sober in AA. Heard about him returning to drinking. I didn't know when I called him if he is in AA, A&M, or, or A&P, but I was in hurting and I needed some help. And that's the greatest thing that man could have done because, because he knew that when I called him, I had run out of every Jew in the Southwest. And I got down to you Gentiles. Hell, I was in serious trouble. I don't mind telling you. And the next 24 hours was the hardest 24 hours I ever spent in my life. You know, I just cold turkeyed after 37 years, and 20 of it as hard as anybody could drink, and 80 as hard as anybody could drink. Last three years, didn't even care if I drank. I thought I was going to kill myself. I just cold turkeyed, or like the silver in the southeastern part, of, like frozen buzzard, that's what it was. 
I had one of those fits, you know, where you beat your head up against the wall and you have the vapors and it comes out of both ends. And I don't know if you've ever come off of one of those things and your eyes make a U-turn, goes up above your brain, you know, and comes back around through this way. And if you're right-eyed or right-handed, you let pop on that lower lid, says, my God, he's alive. And the other one pops up and it starts all over again. But I'll tell you one thing, when I come to the next morning, I was sober. And I didn't have a belly full of tranquilizers, nor did I have a prescription for 500 more. And for this, I am so thankful. And I hope we have the guts and we have the honesty if we are sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. If an institution that's not familiar in treating alcoholics, detoxifying them, or if there's a physician that is not one of us, or any other medical-related facility that is not familiar with the alcoholic in his treatment, I hope we have the honesty and the guts to tell them, don't give them any pills. Don't give them any pills. It's dynamite. It's murder. But I'll tell you one thing. The next morning I was sober and I called him again at 7.30 and I said, W.O., he says, are you drinking? I says, no, sir. He says, don't you take a drink of alcohol this day and call me later. And he hung up. And that's all I told him. At 3.30 in the afternoon, I called him again. I said, W.O., where is that meeting? He says, are you drinking? I says, no, sir. He said, do you want a drink? I says, you darn right I want a drink. He said, why aren't you drinking? I said, I'm too scared. Don't know where. Linda. I said, where is that meeting? He says, do you want to come? By this time, I'd have crawled in six foot of snow naked just to see what kind of people you were that had this insatiable desire not to drink alcohol. And he says, I'll tell you where it is. And when you make the turn, there's a whiskey store on the left and a beer joint on the right. Don't you buy and stop and consuming me any alcohol because when I get out there, I'm going to search you and I'm going to smell you. And David, if you're drinking or drunk, I'm going to throw you right through the front door. You, David, cannot come to Alcoholics Anonymous drinking or drunk. And he hung up. That's all he said. Well, I was in a hell of a predicament. Number one, didn't have any underpants. And I didn't know where Grace was, and she'd thrown out all of my clothes, and I didn't know if she had any, if I had any, so I finally found where she worked. And I called her up, and I said, Grace, do you happen to have one of my old suits? And she says, yes, I have one, and it's to bury you in. And as I look back now, I then ask her the most foolish question I ever asked her in my life. I said, do you mind if I borrow it for a little while? <laughs> I said, I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, another one of your lies and hung up. And that's all. And I was living four blocks from my office. Didn't even know where. I didn't know if I was married, if I was divorced, where I was living in sin. You know what the deal is. And I go home, and when I got home, and I had this old brown silk suit. And, you know, perspired is a good word. I had perspiring on and in them britches so much. And you take an Italian silk suit, you know, you cannot dry. you got to wash it first after you've perspired in it, and it gets stiff. And so now you understand why I need an underpants. I could jump in the darn thing. And I got home and I found I didn't have a shirt with about one or two buttons and didn't have a tie that didn't have chili and spaghetti and everything on. Somewhere between the jail and getting home, I lost on the belt I had. And then when I got ready to get dressed, I, I, I moisturized in the sleeves and everything so much. 
And then they were so rotted out that Grace had to hold the sleeves a certain way so I'd get my arms into the lining instead of between the lining and the sleeves. I had them alligator shoes, so. <laughs> and I put on some brown socks to cover the holes. And I bid them goodbye, and I got in that Mustang that looked like an accordion, and the bank was looking to repossess it, but they couldn't recognize it. And I go out to this AA meeting, and I pass the beer joint, and I pass the whiskey store, and I went out there, and it's a beautiful place, and I had about 150 people out there, and they were all dressed up in there. They were still out there hugging and kissing and rubbing up against, you know. We got a lot of belt buckle polish in AA in our part of the country, you know. You know, that, that rubbing up, it caused a, a few new groups to get started, but, in, you know, and, and I went in there, and I went in there, and I hope I never forget that meeting as long as I live. There's a man standing at the front door, and I hope I never forget that handshake. He stuck out his right hand, and his hand was dry, and mine was wet, and mine slipped away, and I had to grab it again. And now I'm going to tell you about the greatest AA talk I have ever heard in my life. And I've heard tapes, and I've heard records of all of them, and, and since I've been sober. That man said to me, welcome, come in, sit down and have a cup of coffee and let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. That is the greatest AA talk I have ever heard in my life. It expressed love, it expressed understanding, it expressed tolerance. They didn't ask me where I'd been, if I'd have been locked up, who I was, what. He said, welcome, come in, sit down and have a cup of coffee. Let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. And pretty soon, here come W.O., and he drug me in the restroom. He started searching me, and he says, now blow, and I did. And when he pulled on one of those sleeves, it half came off. And I went out, you know, and, and I walked in that group, and there's always about 150 there, you know, and there's always an old-timer there that knows everything about everybody. Never saw me before in his life. Took one look at me, dropped it. He'll never make it, you know. <laughs> and then word spreads like wildflower. We not only got a new drunk, he's a doctor. We kill more doctors and alcoholics anonymous for to get sober than any fellowship more. We got a doctor. We gonna we gonna get neurosurgeons and we gonna get more some more psychiatrists and we're gonna get hospital administrators. They don't say are they alcoholics. But we're going, to, we're going to upgrade AA. Folks, how can you upgrade God? But I believe that as sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, that the only way that we can individually and collectively upgrade the quality of the fellowship of the Alcoholics Anonymous is to stay sober and help other people to recover from alcoholism and to achieve sobriety. That's the only way that I know of that we can upgrade the quality of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know, they don't, they, he's a doctor and they don't know, you know, whether you're an MD, whether you're a veterinarian, whether you're DDS, whether you're a PhD or what in the devil you are. And I'm standing there making small talk and I feel a tug at my coat and I said to myself, I hope they don't pull too hard. And there's a voice that says, doctor. And I says, yes. And that's the nicest I had been called in a long time. This voice says, Doctor. And I turned around. There's a goofy-looking little woman jumping up and down. And she said, Doctor. And I said, Yes. She says, I have a problem. 
I says, yes. She says, my right ovary is bothering me. And before I could tell her, you know, that I was a dentist and I wasn't a real doctor, she says, is it all right if I take Valium or B12? And I straightened up rather professionally. And I looked at her and I said, well, honey, if the roots of your teeth are that long, hell, take them, you know. (laughs) Here come W.O. again. He says, okay, wise guy, the show's over with. And he took me in and he introduced me to another man. And he started telling me about what he used to be like and what happened, what it's like today. And from it started the most beautiful relationship that I have ever had in my life. And I'm a firm believer in Alcoholics Anonymous that we follow the pattern of recovery, that a further demonstration lies ahead in our family life, in our vocational life, and in our community life. Little did I realize when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous that Grace and the two boys that we'd ever be back together. But because of God's grace, the Alcoholics Anonymous program, and the second greatest gift that has been given to me, and that is the Al-Anon program and having the privilege to be sober and living in an AA Al-Anon household, a home. Grace and I celebrated this past June our 30th consecutive wedding anniversary together. And that's pretty good for a drunk. AA Grace is an Alateen sponsor. They've got about 85 or 90 in that Alateen group. Very active in Al-Anon. We're too busy in AA and Al-Anon to fight. And all we have a few short rounds and knock each other about a little bit, hug and kiss, you know. Too old to do the other things. (laughs) You know, and it's a wonderful, wonderful way to live. And I love that gal. A great woman. Because I wouldn't have lived with me five, I wouldn't live with me at all today. And I'll never be able to understand their kind of love. And I'm very, very thankful that I don't tamper with it. Our two boys. The youngest boy, here's a boy that when we were living up in the panhandle of West Texas, they couldn't have anybody in the house. We had a nice home. They used to lock me up in a little room about 11 and a half by 10, and all it had was a dresser and a mirror and a bed and one a can with a lid on top of my whiskey, and they'd lock the door, and the boys couldn't have anybody because their daddy laid in there and he drunk and had fire engines coming in and midgets, you know, and the circus would play and bands would play and jets would take off, and I'd fight the Japs and everything, holler and scream, and when I did break out, I wasn't responsible for my actions didn't want to be that way. Didn't want to be that way. Couldn't have their little playmates at home because they didn't know how their daddy would be. That youngster today, he's teaching school. He's graduate working on his master's. He's a wonderful friend. We have a wonderful father and son relationship. My oldest boy, I got to tell this story. I was down at a meeting down in East Texas to come in one morning about 1.30 and he was there with this beautiful girl, and he says, Daddy, we've been here since 9.30 in the morning, I mean in the evening, waiting to talk to you. 
And I says, you have? He says, Daddy, we need to talk to you. Sit down. I says, tell me what you've got to say. I, he says, sit down. And I looked at that good-looking thing, and I said, she's not pregnant, is she? You know? He says, no, Daddy, sit down. I says, tell me. He says, Daddy, Harriet and I are going to get married. I says, congratulations. I am so glad that I'm so glad for her. He says, but Daddy, aren't you mad? I said, what do you mean? He said, Daddy, she's not Jewish. I said, David, worrying about whether I was a Jew or if I wasn't a Jew, and drinking and power with alcohol and figuring that I was a second-grade citizen and I wasn't allowed this because I wanted this and all this. And I got down in the hole and I met a bunch of people, and they didn't ask me whether I was black or white, whether I was green, whether I had a polka dot, whether I was a leper, whether my hair was kinker, or what it is. I said, boy, what do you want to do about your drinking? And from that simple question that started, a relationship that's indescribably wonderful. And I says, I am so thankful that you told me as your father. And I am so grateful for it and wish you all the success in the world. I said, but I'll tell you one thing. You and her are going to have to tell your grandmother. <laughs> and they did, and all hell broke loose. And she called me up and she said, he's going to be just like you. If you hadn't run around with them Gentiles and drunk that Gentile whiskey and got that Gentile disease, and we're going to do to him just what we did to you. And my mother and father did about nine months before I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they lit those candles and on the eighth day their oldest son was dead in their mind because they went by the old... The Old Testament in Leviticus, it says, if you cannot discipline your children, they are led before their elders and publicly denounced a drunkard and a glutton and stoned to death. When I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not a son in the eyes of my mother and father. They had no son. I was dead. And, of course, Mama forgot that she done forgive me, you know. But eight and a half months before my mother passed away, I was over there for a religious holiday, and I came in, and Mama walked over, and for the first time in over eight years, she kissed me on her forehead and called me her son. And she says, we know that you'd rather be at an AA meeting, and so if you eat fast, you can make the last 30 minutes of your meeting and tell those folks there that we all love them and thanks what Alcoholics Anonymous is doing for you and has restored our son. And that's pretty good for drunk. My father's still alive. He's in a nursing home. And he doesn't understand all of these things. But because of your experience and you're willing to share it with me, I found that he is a human being too. And he has his troubles too. And God bless him. We both love each other. We come here. He won't let me handle his money, but we get along all right. <laughs> and last May, over in that other ballroom, right in front of where Joe was talking yesterday at noon, the doctor and the gumshoe from the State Board of Dental Examiners that were there to take away my license he handed me my 25-year key from the American Dental Association, Art of the Good Fellow. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. 
And as I went around to take the group picture, I had so badly misused the Masonic order. A fella tapped me on my shoulder, and he was to make the talk at that meeting presentation afterward, the worshipful Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Texas. And he walked around, and he put his arm around me. And he reached in his pocket and he gave me his own personal medallion as the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Texas. And he says, thank you for Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's pretty good. That's damn good. For a guy that couldn't go ten minutes without having to take a drink. And little did I ever realize that how I drank. And how I live would ever be worth a tinker's damn to anybody else. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the Al-Anon program and I'm going to get the hell out. You know, the Al-Anon program and we in Alcoholics Anonymous believe that every family who has been relieved owes an obligation to the, to the families who haven't found it yet. And then when the situation arises, each member of the family should only be willing to drag out that dark past from its hiding place, regardless of how bad it is. Because to show others how we suffered and how we have been relieved is the thing that makes life so worthwhile living for us today. And where can the rest of the family put the dark past as the alcoholic and put it in the A program? That's Al-Anon and Alateen. Because if we'll cling to the past, I mean to the thought that our dark past in God's hands is our greatest asset. For it holds the key to life and happiness to countless of thousands who haven't found it yet for it'll avert misery and death. And when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to change my attitude about alcoholism, about alcoholics. And I tell this old story all the time, and I hope it doesn't offend anybody. And I had to change my attitude. It's reminded me of this couple that got married, and he was six foot six and weighed 260 pounds. And she was a five foot nine blonde, little freckled, beautiful thing. And on their honeymoon night, while they went up into their room, and he looked at her and said, okay, woman, get your dress off. And she took her dress off, and he took his pants off, and he said, now you get into my pants. And he's a big bruiser, and she's a little thing, and his pants are so big, she gets in them, and you know they're so big, she can look through the fly like a window. And she says, honey, you know your pants are too big for me. And he said, okay, woman, if you remember that one thing, our marriage will be a success from now on. And she being a pretty good sport, she takes his pants off and she throws them in her suitcase. She reaches in and gets a pair of her stretch pants. She says, okay, Buster, turnabout's fair play. You get into my pants. And this big bruiser, he tries to get them on, gets them up to the knees, and he's tugging and he's ripping and he's cussing and he's hollering and finally looks at her. He says, honey, you know I can't get in your pants. And she says, okay, Buster, and until you change your attitude, it's going to be that way the rest of your life. <laughs> People such as you and members in my group and A's all over the world have shown me that love and understanding are the keys to right principles and right attitudes and right actions, the keys to good living. This is a good way to live, not a life of goodness. But for David, an alcoholic, 
the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in their entirety, our 12 traditions in their entirety, our third legacy in its entirety, and our 12 concepts of world service in its entirety are the keys of kind of life. I'm having so much fun living today. And we in Alcoholics Anonymous most emphatically believe that any alcoholic who can honestly face his problems in the light of our experiences can recover, provided he or she is willing to keep an open mind and search out all spiritual concepts, and that he or she will only be defeated by their own attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. For no one or nobody should have any troubles or problems with the spiritual principles of Alcoholics Anonymous for honesty. Open-mindedness and willingness are essential of our recovery, but they are indispensable. And almost none of us like this self-searching and the leveling of our pride and confession of shortcomings in order for this process to be successfully consummated. But after seeing it working in others, and where did I see it? I saw it in the AA meetings. I saw it in your eyes. I saw it the first night that I came there. And I've seen it ever since, and I see it in this audience tonight. And coming to believe, and how did I come to believe? I came to believe as a result of the helplessness and the futility of the kind of a life I had been leading. And now the third ingredient that makes AA work. And after being eyeballed, eyeballed by the sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who had consummated this solution and was properly armed with facts about himself, and all I had to do was to reach down and pick up this simple kit of spiritual tube that was laid at my feet. When I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they shoved the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in my hand. I sobered up reading that book. My eyes for the first two and a half weeks too crossed to read it. But when I went home that night, I found something that's the only page that's vacant in that book, and that's fly leaf. And written on April 21, 1967, were these words, Good luck, old partner, your friend, and this man's initials. And I never saw him before, but he gave unto me. And so on this August the 4th of 1973, may I most gratefully and thankfully, with all the love that I can express to each and every one of you, May I be privileged to inscribe on each and every one of your fly leaves. Good luck, old partners, your friend David A. God bless each and every one of you, and thank you so much.